You may got a loose screw missing. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome to the worship service at the Wild Oak Congregation. We once again want to thank you for all of you visiting with us today. We appreciate it so much. To add to what Ron said, I think sometimes after game night we need to preach a sermon on cheating or brotherly love. I can't tell which. <laughs> But we, it, it, it's enjoyable. We've all had a good time. And I learned something about that face tan. I'm not good at math. <laughs> so anyway, it was still fun and enjoyable. One of the things that is what we call a reality. We can look around us this morning and, re- and think in the back of our mind and count in the last at least six years the number of people of this congregation that have passed away. When we think about those people and those names, we remind ourselves that death and cemeteries and those things we're familiar with are not new to any of us. We can count through the years as we can look back over time the many of our dear friends and loved ones that we have lost through the years that were members of the Lord's church, those individuals whom we cherished and loved to be with, and even to this day we still miss. We miss their laugh, their time together, their influence, whatever we want to call it. We still miss it. They're still in our memories and they're always at times when we converse about things there, they come up. Because we remember something they said or did that keeps them always in our mind. We also know that death of a friend or loved one is a painful experience. No one wants to lose a loved one. And it's hard to give them up when it is time for them to go. We all understand and know that. But at the same time, we also realize as well that at the same time, that sometime in this few, now or in the future, we will also die as well. We also realize this as well as that, that reality is the fact that death is not the end of us. When this old physical body, this body of clay dies, our spirits do not die. Our spirits continue to live on on the other side of what we call life on earth. So when we attend a funeral, and when we walk through a cemetery, it becomes to us that vivid reminder that we all face death. And the reason why we face death is because of what Adam and Eve did and the curse brought upon what they did in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3. Solomon writes of death in his book of Ecclesiastes. He writes it in a very forceful, blunt manner. Basically, let us know we're going to die. In chapter 9, beginning with verse 9, he says simply this, Enjoy! Life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might for there is no work or fault of knowledge or wisdom in shield to which you are going. Again, I saw under the sun The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. 
like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Solomon, you said it right. It basically begins simply this way. We are get up one morning, we're doing the same things we do each day, we're going to work or we're going out in the yard, we're gone. It is simply Solomon is right. The thing we do not know is, is when death comes, it may come through an accident. It may come from a long a disease that has ailed our body and finally it's, the body says, I cannot take no more. And it passes on to the other side. But this morning we want to look at it from this viewpoint for a moment. As you have attended a graveside service, as you walked through that cemetery, one of the things you may have noticed, whether you were standing by one or you walked by it, you realize as you did so, you looked around and said, you know what, that has to be the biggest tombstone in this cemetery. And you realize and you look at it and you wonder who was this individual that, that this humongous piece of marble or concrete or what they have made it out of, why is it here? Why, what's the tribute being made to as you observe this tombstone that is so very large compared to all the others? But there's a question to be asked. Does having the biggest tombstone in the cemetery guarantee a right relationship with God? There's the question. We realize, as we mentioned a moment ago, that graves and tombstones are not new. We don't read very far in the Word of God that when we read about the word murder and the word death, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 8, there it simply tells us that Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Just a very simple statement. Rose up against him and killed him. The thing we do not know is how old these young men were. Were they still teenagers? Were they older than that? The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't realize how much time had passed since the beginning of all things till this, this event took place in the early days of life upon this earth. So from that point forward, we're familiar with simply graves and, if we say, tombstones. We look at Genesis 23, there we find Sarah was buried along with Abraham in the cave of Mount Pelah. We look again at Genesis 35, there it tells us there that Rachel was buried on a journey toward the city of Bethlehem. We can go to 2 Kings 23 and verse 17, and there you read about a tomb of a young prophet that had, was killed because he was deceived by an older prophet. The grave was marked well with a description that old prophet made sure that grave was known. We can turn to Matthew 27. And there we read as Matthew gives us an under, a description, an understanding of what happened when Joseph of Arimathea took the charge to bury the body of the Son of God. So we're not unfamiliar with we go right up this street here, just a little ways, and we see a cemetery on the left. It's been there for a long, long time. Took a memorial park. When you drive by it, it's just like it is if you walk through it, you remind the fact that death is a simple reality that we face every single living day. But again, you must ask yourself, why did that person have, as you thought about it for a moment, the biggest tombstone in the cemetery? 
Well, some would say that individual had the biggest tomb in the cemetery because he was he or she was greatly loved by all that knew them all the days of their life. And because of that great love that everyone had for that individual, we built and spent thousands of dollars on this great tombstone to let the whole world know that we this individual was loved by all of us. And we want the world to know that is the case. It's a wonderful thing that family wants to do that. That family essence wants to be, as it were, a living reminder to all who walk through that cemetery, here was a person that was loved. And on that description you may have several things that describe about the, how much that individual was loved by all friends and family. And someone said, you're just, oh, all they're doing is trying to pay a tribute. Uh, but don't forget one thing. The funerals, the fancy cemeteries, the tombstones are for the living, not the dead. They are for the living, not the dead. The principles that are lying behind that is this. We need to learn what the Bible emphatically tells us. To love our family and express that love and carry out that love while they are alive. And they know that they are the recipients of our love and of our care and of our concern. And they know it every day as we meet them, love them, let them know, hey, I love you. And they do things for them, they talk to them, whatever it may be. They know of your love and of your concern. Was this not what John in his first epistle reminded us in chapter 3 and verse 11? From the, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that what? That we should love one another. In essence, there he was talking to a congregation of God's people, or maybe even several congregations of God's people, but the brute principle of that is still true. Even in the family, in the home, there has to be that attitude and constant reminder of one another that we are in love with one another. It has to be shown why they are alive. And they know that they're recipients of our love. Providing for the, the greatest tombstone, leaving all those inscriptions of, of love that they had for this individual just really means nothing to them. It doesn't. And Solomon says they are no longer under the sun. We know. We know. It's impossible to go to heaven without loving our brethren. In that same third chapter, if you move down to verses 14 and 50, there John continues saying, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, John emphasizes the fact that love for one another is to be carried out and to be adorned on those around us that we do care for while they are alive. 
knowing that when they leave this earth and pass on to the other side, they know as they're dying that family's love is still there and they cling unto that to the last moment of their life. But after they're gone, a tombstone worth thousands of dollars is for those who observe it and say, oh, see how great they are loved. So you see then having that biggest tombstone in the cemetery does not guarantee a right relationship with God, nor is it really real proof of family love. Let's ask again. We've passed this humongous tombstone, and we ask ourselves, why was it built? We'll turn the coin over. And we'll say, it's built because the family members are guilty for having neglected them while they were alive. Now we have it on the other side. We have a family that through the years has been torn apart by hatred. We've had a family torn apart by dis- we call it hatred, discord, or whatever you want to label it. That family's always been torn asunder by all this going on, the mouthing, the words, the actions, all let it be known. There is no love in this family. And when one of those people die that's in that family, all of a sudden the one who hated them the most is crying the loudest. There seemed to be more eat up with grief than anyone else. And you kind of wonder back man, why are they grieving? They said all through their life, I can't stand you. I hate you. I wish you were dead. Now they are. Why do they act? Many times it's the fact the reality has set in. They are here no more. They cannot ever ask for their forgiveness. They cannot ask to restore that love. It's gone. So what do they do? They build the biggest tombstone in the cemetery. Why? They want to make up. They want to make up for their hatred of this loved one. They want to let the world know, I'm sorry for the way I treated them. So I'm going to show everyone how I'm sorry that I treated them. So I'm going to build, spend thousands upon tens of thousands of dollars to build this memorial to them. Let the whole world know I really did love them. And you can write love all over it. What's wrong? What's wrong is this. When are we to speak loving words to one another? When are we to have that close-knit family ties and all desire and wanted times is just not there? The envy, the strife, the hatred runs to that family. When is the time to make the healing? When they are alive. When they are alive. And we're able to communicate. We're able to restore. We're able to bring back that which we want and that family to have. The encouragement a family needs, the building up that family needs to be in the forefront of our lives every day. But it must be done while those whom we have hatred or have bitterness toward is a lie that we can correct it. In Ephesians 4, 29-32, 
Paul mentions some words that are called bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. He was talking to members of a congregation and says, these things ought not to be in a congregation. Are they not also not to be in a home? Yes. The same principle is still true. Those things are not to be part of our family. Listen as he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Why? Along with all malice, be kind to mother, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, when can you do all of that, Paul? While they are alive. While they are alive. You see, once they're gone, you can talk to them. And you pull your chair up and sit by that grave for the rest of the days of your life and talk to your blue in the face. They can't hear you. And that tombstone's and let it be an adoration of your love for them is a little too late. It becomes your, I guess, security blanket or your means of letting the world know, I really did love this person. I don't care what I said. Here's the proof. Here's the proof. So having the biggest tombstone in the cemetery, again, doesn't guarantee a right relationship with God. Nor does it make up for the failure to love our family. It doesn't make up for that. Basically, you could say it's thousands of dollars thrown to the wind because of what little good it will ever do. Again, a person might have the biggest tombstone in the cemetery. But the question is not having to do with the size of the tombstone, but rather it has to do with the depth of that person's relationship with God. The fact, the fact that we are the bride of Christ tells us of the kind of relationship we are to have with the Godhead. Paul to his brethren Ephesus in chapter 5 made it plain. As he talks about the intimate love between a husband and the wife. That home, that intimate love that God ordained in the beginning of all time. That intimacy between a husband and wife. Paul says that is what every child of God must have with the Son of God. That same kind of intimacy. That same kind of oneness. Some kind of unity. Because we literally do become one with Christ when we're raised out of that water grave of baptism. If that's not the case, why did our Savior, if John records it, simply say this to His Father in John 17, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfect, become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. What did our Savior pray for? Division? No. He didn't say to us, uh, Father, may they all be divided. didn't say that. Why? Because He knew if we were, the world would never believe us. But He said for us to be what? One. There's that intimacy. For us to be like Him in His like Him, like He and the Father is one. He wants us to be one in them. He prayed for that kind of unity. He wanted, He's telling us, this is the kind of relationship I want you to have with me and my Heavenly Father, an intimate one. That we live in that likeness and image of the Heavenly Father. Wasn't that what James trying to tell us in begin chapter 4 and verse 8? You know, draw near to God and what does it say? He'll draw near to you. James was even talking about the intimacy of drawing near to God, getting closer to Him every day we live. He will draw closer and closer to you. But how do we do that? How do we answer God? How do we answer Christ's prayer to His Father? Oh, big tombstone in the cemetery? No, no, no. No. Can't do that. That won't work. That doesn't tell us anything. It is a daily walk in truth and light and it is keeping this forever focused on this. That's the only way we can ever become intimate with God. It's the only way we become one as the Savior prayed for. That we have that same attitude. That we keep our minds stayed on Him. All the time. All the time. If we tell someone that we are a Christian, and that's all we say, I am a Christian, does that not in itself describe our relationship with the Heavenly Father? Yes, it does. It simply tells those around us that daily, in spite of my failings and my faults and my sins, because I'm human, my attitude every day is I am a child of God. And I work daily, day after day, to grow and be closer to my Heavenly Father than ever before. It's kind of like the old saying used to be, and still is, Live one day at a time. Why? Because this could be the last one. Live every moment as if it was going to be the last moment you lived and the last time you breathed. The intimate relationship with God. See, that is more of a, we might say, a comment or commitment or testimony to your life than building thousands of dollars worth of marble and granite and concrete and writing all over, this person was a Christian. If they truly are, 
You don't need the sign. People will already know. People already know. So having that biggest tombstone in the cemetery does not guarantee a right relationship with God. That's the thing we need to remember. It makes no difference how much was spent. It makes no difference what's written on it. If that person and that grave does not guarantee a right relationship with God. Why? Because you can't buy it. You cannot buy it. So it just simply boils down to this. Having that big tombstone has nothing whatsoever to do with your salvation. Nothing. In the past, some fellow said about this, he said you'd be better off burying the grave that's not even marked and go to heaven and have that thousands of dollars of tombstone and find yourself going to the eternal damnation of hell. He's right. He's right. The only problem and the only cure to that problem called sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. It, and it alone, has the power to redeem us. It, and only it has the power, not only to redeem us, to put us in that right relationship with God, that intimate relationship that is described throughout the Word of God that needs to be between a child of God and His Heavenly Father. When the Hebrew writer writes of this, he reminds us in chapter 5, verse 8, that God showed His love for us and that while we were still, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. That is every living human being. This morning, if you're not a child of God, this is the day, as we've always said and continue to say, everything is ready. It is simply waiting for you to respond to that invitation this morning. To become one of His precious children. To leave here knowing today, if your life was to be taken even this afternoon, that you're now a child of God. You're in the right relationship with your Heavenly Father. The tombstone won't help, but the blood of Christ can do so. If you come believing that He is the Christ, come repenting of the way you've been living your lives, confessing Him before all, and be buried in the water grains of baptism, raised to walk that new life that Paul describes in Romans 6. You leave here on the right relationship with the Heavenly Father. But this morning, if you're a child of God who strayed from that truth, who no longer walking as you should as a child of His, and you know full well if death came today, you would miss heaven because you've let sin take a hold of your life and pull you away from God. While you know, realize, and understand, here's the opportunity to, read it, to ask God's forgiveness. He's promised you that He will. When you come to that repent attitude and ask for prayers, He said, I will forgive and forevermore forget. Think on these scenes while we get together, we stand in while we sing.